Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast where collaboration is our secret handshake joining forces to turn the impossible into mission accomplished. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I'll be to be SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight to nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft the business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Earlier this week, I was talking to a SaaS founder who had exited and was working on her next thing. And it's gonna be epic, for one. But our conversation really centered around whether it's better to be solo or have co-founders. Her last venture, they had four co-founders. And I've done it with as many as four, and I've done it solo and several times in between. And the answer to which is better is yes. Both have advantages and disadvantages. It depends on, I mean, so many factors. But in the, the kaleidoscope of business, being the solo superhero might seem appealing from the outside. But, you know, even Batman needed Robin. Frodo? Well, he needed Sam, right? Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Snoopy and Charlie, maybe? Well, you know, maybe you have to be a little bit older to know even who those people are. But, you know, it's the sidekicks. It's the dynamic duos that take a venture from a solo act to an ensemble performance of epic proportions. You know, think about it. Where would Sherlock Holmes be without his Watson? I'm sure he could unravel mysteries alone, but Watson brings out the human side of Sherlock, grounding him and reaching solutions that, you know, pure logic just can't touch. And in the startup universe, this translates into a founder with vision, pairing with a co-founder who complements challenges and amplifies that vision, or maybe integrates. You know, it's about having somebody to bounce ideas off of at midnight, Someone who believes in the dream as much as you do. When you think you're crazy, they go, yeah, maybe you are, but I'm I'm all in with you. And also, it's pretty important to have somebody with you who's not afraid to call out, you know, the emperor's new clothes when needed. Again, you might have to do some research on that one. But, you know, we need people, full stop. We absolutely need people. And sometimes that does come with the title of co-founder and equity and those kinds of things. Sometimes there are other arrangements. But the key here is don't go alone. And, and in fact, I'm actually with a group of the smartest business leaders I know this week. They're running amazing companies and we're focused on helping each other solve problems in person this week. You know, and I can't imagine being on this journey or doing this stuff without them. The power of two is formidable. And whether that's two or three or, or more co-founders, I mean, think about it like a, a rope. You take like three strands of a, a rope and you take each one of those together has a strength, but you put them together and it's like multiplying them times each other, not just adding them together. And it's, it's super powerful when you have something like that. Uh, you know, and it's also about equilibrium. So you have in that kind of a relationship, one that innovates and another that iterates. Gino Wickman lays this out really nice in his book, Rocket Fuel, where you have a visionary and you have an integrator. And you put them together and, and it's rocket fuel. That's kind of the whole point. And it's truly super, super powerful. You've got the dreamer and the doer. You've got the disruptor and the diplomat. And, and this built-in sounding board for every idea. You know, a sanity check for every decision and you know, a backup singer for every pitch. You know, the partnership is the backbone of resilience, the secret sauce of sustained momentum. And that's what we're looking for in a business is to become future-proof. You know, being a founder and leading a company, it's hard, and I'll never tell you different. It is freaking hard. But I think one of the greatest benefits about having a co-founder, a partner, a second-in-command is that when the pressure mounts, it's those shared glances that say, hey, you know, we've got this. It's the encouragement of, that was hard, but you did the right thing. I'll tell you what, that is, that is priceless. Or when you're ready to give up. Anybody ever felt that way? And they go, hey you know, it's going to get better. Not every day is going to suck as much as today did. It'll get better. Or, you know, we are so close to a breakthrough. Keep on going. And having that is absolutely priceless. Being a founder is hard, but being a founder and leading a company is also very rewarding. 
And I don't just mean like building a company and exiting and those, those big mountaintop moments. Actually, honestly, I think that's secondary. But it's the people on the journey with you. It's, it's your number two. It's the co-founder. It's your executive team, the department heads. And every single contributor who has their fingerprints on the company itself. When the team is aligned, working together, committed to common purpose and goals, together we present that unified front that tells the world that we're not just building a company, we're building a legacy. We're building something that matters. And see, that ability to divide and conquer, to play to each other's strengths and cover for each other's blind spots. And I've got a lot of them, so I need lots of great team members. So in the narrative of your business story, who's your Robin, your Watson, your Pepper Potts? Find them, treasure them, and take on the business world together because the right duo doesn't just add, they multiply. Our expert last week was Arnab Misra, a second-in-command CEO at Exactly and has a great handle on revenue growth strategy and how their clients succeed using their sales solutions to drive revenue. And with that kind of alignment, it is completely clear why Exactly and their clients are just crushing revenue goals. It's a great episode. And our founder last Tuesday was Greg Rich, founder and CEO of Vivantio, the customer fanatics. We talked about challenges faced by companies delivering high service levels, entering foreign markets, and an innovative approach to using AI handling tickets. So we want to keep those service levels super high. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Cameron Harold, dubbed the CEO Whisperer. He is the brains behind the COO Alliance and transformative invest in your leaders course. With his guidance, companies have doubled their profits and revenue in under three years, just like 1-800-GOT-JUNK. They went from $2 million to $106 million. Cameron is a prodigious speaker praised by Forbes, and he empowers leaders through his top-rated talks spanning 26 countries and every single continent, including Antarctica. I'm going to ask him about that. So it's one that's not on my list yet. And best-selling books like Vivid Vision and his acclaimed Second in Command podcast. Welcome, Cameron Harold. Hey, Cameron. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thanks, Jeff. Good to speak with you. Well, tell me a little bit about your background and COO Alliance. I mean, how did you get into doing what you're doing today? Sure. My, my background, I was groomed as an entrepreneur. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Father was an entrepreneur. Both sets of grandparents were entrepreneurs. Wow. Uh, I, did a, I did a talk that was on the main TED website 11 years ago that talked about raising kids to be entrepreneurs. And it was all of the lessons that I had growing up. And it was also probably about 15 different businesses I had by the time I was 18. When wow. I was 20 years old, I had my first, first real operational company with 12 full-time employees. I was in Second year university, and I had 12 employees running my business with me or for me, and uh, did that for three years, and then ended up working at a head office of a group called College Pro Painters, which became the largest residential house painting company on the planet. I was on their executive leadership team there where we would recruit 800 franchisees a year off university campuses around North America, and we would train them to run businesses. So I started coaching entrepreneurs back in 1989, wow. way before coaching, yeah, way before business coaching was even a thing. I'd coached 120 entrepreneurs by 1993, left there, and I joined a family friend. We built up what became Gerber Auto Collision in the U.S., Boyd Auto Body in Canada, $2 billion collision repair chain. I'd operated kind of as the second in command of the franchising arm there. Then I was hired as the president of a private currency company that we built and sold, exited that business, and I joined my best friend, Brian, who was building out a junk removal business. It was called the Rubbish Boys, and he was changing the name over to 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I joined him as his 14th employee, uh, became the COO, and when I left six and a half years later, we'd gone from $2 million to $106 million in revenue in six years, from 14 employees to 3,100 employees in the six years, wow. and we ended up operating in four countries, 330 cities, so a real big operational business. We ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. Left there about 16 years ago and uh, started working behind the scenes working with CEOs and COOs of typically mid-sized companies. So usually 50 to 500 employees and just truly helping them scale. I've written six books. I've been paid to speak in 28 countries. I've been paid to speak on every single continent, including Antarctica. I saw that. Um, and 
Yeah. And then I started something called the COO Alliance six years ago. We've got second in commands of companies that do at least 5 million or greater in revenue as members from 17 countries. Recently launched another group called the OpSpot, which is an online mastermind community for people in operations roles. And I host the second in command podcast. And we've had about 320 guests on the second in command podcast. That's a quick summary. <laughs> Outstanding. So COO second in command. I mean, that's a, a role that is is different in different organizations, but it, it really mm -hmm. does have a definition. What what does a COO do? What should that's a great do? question. Yeah, great question. What's really interesting is the head of finance, right? If it was a CFO or a VP of finance, could probably be the head of finance for ninety percent of companies at the same size. The head of marketing could probably be the head of marketing for most companies the same size. The head of IT, the head of culture the head of uh, people, you know, HR could probably do their role across any company the same size as they are, regardless of industry. What's really weird about the second in command role, whether it's a VP operations or a COO or president, is that they're probably able to work with 5% of the companies that are the same size. Because the COO has to be really good at the stuff the CEO sucks at, or the stuff that the CEO <laughs> does not like working on. We have to be there typically with some industry IP, typically with the, the right size of an organization, but it's really because we're the balance, the yin and yang to the CEO, that we're this real strange kind of uh, role. In fact, Harvard wrote an article about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO, and they identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers because we are such a different animal. I think that's exactly right. One of my favorite books is called Rocket Fuel, and and it sure. actually talks about that. You know, the, the you have the visionary and you have the operator, the integrator, and, right and I, it, without one, without the other, just it doesn't work. And so I it's think impossible. it's impossible. So yeah, I'm, I'm friends with both Mark Winters and Gino Wickman, who wrote Rocket Fuel. We're in a couple of mastermind communities together, and what they really nailed was for they're more on the on the small uh, size companies, like small to medium size. Um, they're absolutely right with the visionary and integrator. They really are that yin and yang, right? You need to ha you yep. can't have one without the other. It's very, very tough for an entrepreneurial founder to be successful without somebody to make their dreams come true. Yeah. Often that integrator or that second command is the brakes to the entrepreneur's gas, or or we're the, or, or we're the leash true. to the dragon. We're kind of holding yeah. them back and just making sure that they're controlled. The difference that I have with the integrator role, with what becomes a true second in command, when, when you really move into the true COO role, is you are no longer the tiebreaker. And that's the role that they assign the integrator as the tiebreaker. And what they mean by that is that they tend to work with a management team, usually a bunch of people that are running their functional areas, but they're not true leadership team members. They haven't built three companies already. They don't have the wisdom of time behind them. If you're leading a group of people that it's really their first time running companies, yeah, you need to be the tiebreaker. But it's kind of like when mom and dad told us, because I said so, you know, because right. I'm your mother, that worked until we were seven. And then when we were teenagers, we're like, <laughs> like I don't care if you're my mom. And we start pushing back a little bit. Well, the COO of a, of a mid-sized 250-person company with a real established leadership team is no longer the tiebreaker. They're more facilitating communication. They're more helping the team engage in healthy conflict. They're helping the team work through issues and collaborate and look at the data and, and, and really then come out of decisions with consensus. So they're not really the tiebreaker as much as they are, you know, the mediator and the guide and the, the, the person stirring it as well. They're often even stirring the group to get more conflict, to get more healthy engagement. So that's something that's very different between what they talk about in Rocket Fuel and then what I talk about in my book, The Second in Command. Yeah. And so does that role change? I mean, how does it evolve as you go yeah. from being, you know, five, 10, 20, 50, $100 million company? So I call it the ones and the threes that every company changes when you go from one employee to three to 10 to 30 to, you know, 100, 300, yep. et cetera, or from 100,000 to 300,000 to a million to 3 million, 10 million, 30. So the changes, I'll walk you through on the numbers side. When you're an entrepreneur, you start a company, it's, it's you doing everything. You're kind of the jack of all trades, master of none. Right. You usually hire a couple of people. You get an assistant, you get a, a marketing person or whatever to help you do some stuff. When you get to 10 employees, you tend to have your first person managing everybody or managing a bunch of people for you. When you get to 30 employees, you usually have four or five people 
managing everyone in the company and you're managing four or five people. When you get to 100 employees, you tend to have your first leadership team where you have a very seasoned team of five or six leaders who have built and run companies before. They come in with a level of P&L responsibility that they didn't have at the management level. They come in with a level of strategic insight and oversight that the managers don't really normally have. They come in with a level of autonomy where they don't need to be managed at all. They've done this before. They kind of need you to set the direction and step out of the way so they can do what they know needs to get done. And then then at that point, politics starts creeping in and all bets are off, right? Everything starts to change at that point. (laughs) It definitely changes, especially once you get that second layer and and you have that in the leadership team. The dynamic yeah, and is people, very, are, very people are now vying for, they're vying for visibility right they're vying for position right. they're vying for promotions they're vying just to be heard so that's just a normal part but that's where the leadership team and the coo need to be very good at the soft skills of leadership and i cover a lot of them in my course called invest in your leaders that they need to be very good at situational leadership coaching delegation one-on-one meetings interviewing hiring onboarding you know all of the skills that true leaders need to be great at that's what will take your company from the 10 million to the 30 and the 30 to the 100 is when you have a depth of leadership and a depth of talent. Well, that makes a lot of sense. What makes a great COO? Well, some of those skills for sure, right? The ability to, to manage and lead people, the ability to inspire. The, the COO's role is to put the plans and the people in place to make the CEO's vision come true. Right. They're, they're there to understand and build the culture and leverage culture. So it's collaboration. It's interviewing and recruiting. It's the onboarding of great talent and it's building out the, the teams and the plans so that they can actually then continue to scale. They also need to be able to work with other senior people that have more skills than they have in specific functional areas. But they're able to organize and kind of get that team functioning like a like a sports team, right? You've got a quarterback who's amazing as a quarterback, but they're useless at kicking. And you've got a punter who's great at punting, but they're useless at being the receiver. Well, the coach is probably not as good as any of the players at any of those roles, but they're able to get them all to work together. That's very similar to what the CEO needs to be good at. And now I'm laughing at myself because only yesterday I said, stop using American football analogies when you're on podcasts. And they just used one. Ridiculous. <laughs> I do that too, especially this time of year. Yeah, it can't help. I do it. I just did it. I don't even watch football and I just did it. Like, I can't believe I literally posted it yesterday. It's ridiculous. Uh, I got to go on that. I'll go back and make a comment about it. Well, you've had some great success, not only in your own companies, but uh, coaching other companies. What are some uh, key strategies or principles that you consistently teach uh, your clients to achieve remarkable growth in their own organizations? For me, it's to not focus on growth. It's to not focus on the customer. It's to not focus on cash flow. It's to focus on your employees. And if you build a team of very happy, very engaged, very focused, very connected employees, if your employees are so happy working with the company, they'll go through brick walls to take care of the customers, which means you'll have very happy, very engaged customers that don't churn. And then you'll be able to charge more than you normally charge because your customers are so happy and they don't churn and the word of mouth is high that your revenue and your gross margin and your profitability all take care of itself. So for me, it's always obsessing with the leadership team about building an insanely great company culture. And culture is not about the perks. It's not about giving out the free massages and the free lunches. Those are perks. That's not culture. Culture is alignment with vision, alignment with core values and obsession with the core purpose and obsession around the BHAG and then really bringing great people into the organization. As Jim Collins talks about getting the right people on the bus and everybody off the bus, I've yet to find a company that works hard enough to get rid of the wrong people. You know, we, hmm. we talk a lot about wow. recruiting, yet we let the cultural cancers sit in our company or we let the underperformers sit. We spend all of our time managing these cultural cancers or the underperformers instead of spending our time with our best people. So I try to get companies to think about that and to look at the true A players as racehorses. The B players are the workhorses and the C players have to go to the glue factory. <laughs> or they That's can go work. Good analogy. Know, here's the reality is that no matter how bad an employee is or how underperforming an employee is, 
the government and the post office are always hiring. So they're going to be able right. to go get a job, right? It's not like they're going to be unemployed. Uh, Just don't let true. them come work for you anymore. That's a, it's a really hard thing to do. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I laugh when you say that because I've been in that, that role many times where I sure. know that it, it's time to, to let a person go and, and move on. Uh, but I, I don't. And, and it's, you know, three months, six months down the road. And, and it happens at that point. And like, I knew this six months ago and I didn't take action fast enough. I think it's a reason why CEOs, entrepreneurs, even COOs need to be a part of mastermind communities and need to be involved in a coaching program, whether it's group coaching or one-on-one -on -one coaching. And this isn't me selling my services. Yes, I have coaching, group coaching, CEO Alliance. That's not what I'm talking about here. It is absolutely critical for high-performing CEOs and COOs and leaders to have mentors, to be in masterminds, to get coaching so that somebody can hold their face up to a mirror and let them see that sometimes they're the problem or sometimes they're being chicken or sometimes they're using excuses. Yeah. You know, I remember years ago, this was a, probably 20 years ago now, 2003, I was sitting at, in at Denny's restaurant in Vancouver, Canada with a mentor of mine, Rob Hunt, having breakfast, 7.30 in the morning. He said, is there anybody in your company you know you have to fire? And I said, yeah, I've got this one guy. He said, what's his name? I said, Tyler. He said, how long have you known you should fire Tyler? I was like, oh, about six months. He said, why yep. haven't you done it yet? I said, well, he got us on Oprah. He's been amazing at landing press. I'm hoping he can change. We're growing so quickly. I'm distracted. I don't have the time. I, I like him. He's a good friend. I feel bad. I, I feel like we've let him down in some ways. And Rob listened to me give 12 excuses. And then he said, so basically, you're chicken? And I went, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and he said, and this is where it got real good. He said, when are you going to fire Tyler? This was Tuesday morning, 7.30. I said, I'll fire him by Friday. He shook his head. And he said, don't tell me when you'll do it by. Tell me when you'll do it. Mm. So don't give me a deadline. Tell me when it'll get done. And secondly, Friday's too long. I said, fine, I'll do it tomorrow. He shook his head. I said, fine, I'll do it today. He said, what time today will you fire Tyler? I said, I will fire him at 12 o'clock. He said, good, call me at 1230 because I know this is going to be hard for you because he's a friend, because it's been happening for six months, because it's going to be tough. But you make darn sure to be there for him because every day for the last six months, you've picked on him, you've excluded him, you've kept showing him all the stuff he's doing wrong. He's read your body language. He's read your energy. He knows he's going to get fired. And because you've had the insecurity as a leader to not fire him, you've broken the spirit of a human being. So wow. fire him at 12 o'clock, fire him at 12 o'clock, but you make darn sure you're there to support him until he's back on his feet because you failed him as his leader. I was like, holy, <laughs> this is brutal. And then I had to buy <laughs> breakfast. I had to buy my mentor breakfast after this. I, yeah. I drive back to the office and the first person that I see at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was Tyler. It's 8.30 in the morning. I go, Ty, can I grab you for a sec? We walk into the boardroom. I close the door. I turned around. He has tears in his eyes. I start getting choked up. And before I had a chance to say anything, Tyler said, what took you so long? Wow. Yeah, it was brutal. We named a room after him. We did mentor him until he got back on his feet. He ended up starting a PR firm, did PR for Chipotle back in the early days, 20, 19 years ago. Did a really, but, but the, the kind of wrap around this story for years, I would get text messages and emails from Tyler. I'd go for dinners with him. And he kept saying, thank you for setting me free that day. Thank you for doing what was really hard for you, but it was the right thing. Ten years ago, I got a phone call that Tyler had gone missing on a five-day hike, and we never found the body. He wow. uh, was the, lar the largest search in BC history at 7,700 hours with search and rescue and low-flying planes. And I can live with myself because I know I set him free. I wish I'd done it sooner. Uh, but the kind of lesson for everybody is that if you have those excuses, they are just excuses. It is best to just set them free. And, and then the last kind of lesson I'll wrap on this is that I've worked with lots of CEOs and COOs on this, and they'll give me all their excuses. And I said, look, if your phone rang right now and you found out that Tyler had gone missing or Bob was hit by a truck walking home from lunch and he's dead, what would you do to replace him? Make a list of the five things you'd have to do to replace him because he's, he's dead. You have to replace him and then start working on that list, but make the cut today. Hmm. Wow. It's a long answer, but hopefully a good one. Yes. Yes. It's a very, very good one.
And I think that's it, it makes a lot of sense because there every single time I know that I should have done it sooner and uh, you know try and get better at that. But uh, but I love that not not settling for the excuse. And and you had somebody there that that was willing to hold your feet to the fire to hold you accountable, and and make you make yeah. hard decisions. And I think that's, again, why mastermind communities, I'll complete that point because I left it as an open loop, but <clears throat> mastermind communities, coaching, group coaching, you're around peers who have said the same thing or heard the same thing, and they're not going to let you get away with it. And you're also around peers who are going to support you because it is going to be hard to make the tough decisions in our business, whether it's letting people go or making the cuts or firing a customer or negotiating with a landlord or bank. There's all these weird decisions we have to make as entrepreneurs. And, and when you're building a SaaS company, you've got a, a gazillion of them. So when you're in a mastermind or you're in coaching, in group coaching, it, it gives you an unfair advantage that your competitors don't have. Yes, without a doubt. So you've worked with some pretty big clients and uh, Sprint, uh, Middle Eastern Monarchy, which is, is very cool. Um, any memorable experiences or challenges working with high profile clients? Yeah, I'll speak to as yeah, I coach the the royal family or, or the emir who runs the country of Qatar. So they are an absolute monarchy. They own the country of Qatar. Um, when I was coaching Marcelo Claret, who was the CEO of Sprint, and then I was coaching his second in command, Jamie Jones, for 18 months, you know, Sprint was the 82nd largest company in the United States. And I was sitting in Marcelo's boardroom at the head office of Kansas City at, at Sprint, and it was just the two of us. You had to go through like three layers of executive assistance and security just to get into his boardroom beside his office. And hmm. we were going through his org chart and it was all of the people on his team. And we were talking about who to, who to put into a different seat, who to handcuff and who to fire. And there was this one guy who he'd talked about being negative and grumpy and nobody liked him. And I said, you got to fire him. He goes, Cameron, I can't. This is like, he's got a C. I'm not going to give you the title, but it's like, cause it's a publicly traded company, but it was a C level title. So the guy's been with me for like 20 plus years. His base salary is like two and a half million dollars. Like I can't fire the guy. And I said, well, last time I checked, you had the CEO title. And he just looked at me and shook his head and put a red X through the guy's name. And a week later, the guy was gone. And what Marcelo recognized was the cost of the wrong person is 15 times at their least. annual salary. When we were at dinner that night, um, he and his wife and my ex and I were having dinner at their home that night. And we were talking and, Marcelo said, when are people no longer going to be the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I started laughing. I'm like, if you're, if you're the 82nd largest company in the U.S. and people are still it's the exactly issue, they're always right. the issue. So uh, that's, what I, that's what I try to work with all the COOs on. And I remember the CEO Alliance and our, in our group coaching with all the CEOs and COOs is all of the people issues that you can't automate these people issues. You can't put a technology solution in place for people issues. You can't you know, use AI to solve the people issues. People issues have to be worked on with people and leadership is a people skill. Um, and that's, that's where we focus all of our time and energy. Yeah, that's true. Certainly a lot of it. So would you agree with the, with the statement you get what you tolerate when it comes to, to people and, and leadership? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, I've never heard that saying before, but absolutely. Yeah. You get what you tolerate for sure. That makes a lot of sense to me. Just yeah. intuitively that makes sense. Right. Well, you've built a couple of companies, I mean, really big and, uh, you know, 100 million plus. So what are the big lessons that... Made lots that? of mistakes. <laughs> I made lots of mistakes. What were the big lessons that you learned along the way? What were some of those mistakes? Wow. In my first book, Double Double, chapter 17, I wrote a chapter called Letters mm -hmm. to My Younger Self. And it's about 65 different things that I really learned from growing these companies that I literally, I internalized, like I really learned the lessons. Some of them would be, you know, we almost bankrupted 1-800-GOT-JUNK at 60 million in revenue on the march to the hundred. And our, our head of finance, our VP of finance was very quiet, very amiable, very analytical. He was a Filipino, very soft-spoken. And Brian and I were just 100 miles an hour, you know, start now, plan later. We got this. Just We were momentum creates momentum. And um, and we were on a charge. Like we've been, we've been crushing everything. And our head of finance kept saying, are you sure we're not growing too quickly? Are you sure we're not burning through our cash? Are you sure that we shouldn't slow this down? And we're like, no, we got this. No, we got this. No, we got this. 
and we never listened to him. And the, the big lesson I took away when we almost bankrupted the company was if you're not willing to listen to somebody who works for you, hire someone you are willing to listen mm. to or, or learn the ability to listen to people, to read their body language, to give them the time and space to ask the questions and shut the and use your two ears and the one mouth in the ratio God gave us to them, like listen twice as often as we speak. Because Hendrick could have prevented us from making some pretty dangerous mistakes. We might have also been able to grow just as quickly, but by leveraging the balance sheet better, by looking at our cash flow better, by changing some of the order of operations in which we, we started things, we probably could have grown just as fast, but done it in a more financially responsible way. Because what happened was Brian had to go out and borrow $420,000 to meet payroll wow. one night because we'd spent our five, we had spent $5 million in cash in three months paying for an office move, an office renovation, bonuses, taxes, cash. Like We literally drained our bank account. And we went to the bank to borrow money. They said, well, you don't have any money. We're like, yeah, we just spent it all. We, look, we were so excited about having used our cash. They thought we were, you know, but it was because we weren't willing to listen to the guy who was right. That was a big yeah. one. Do you think growth journeys like that where you're growing so fast and, and it just covers up mistakes that then come back oh, to yeah. bite you later? Yeah, I work with a lot of companies on that that are high growth companies right now. I call them hyper growth. So we had six yeah. consecutive years of 100% revenue growth. You know, if you're growing at 20, 30% a year, that's fast growth. But when you're doing 100% year over year, that's really fast growth. And yes, it does cover up mistakes. What it also does is it, allow, it, it, it essentially promotes waste. You end up over hiring, yeah. spending money on stuff you shouldn't, and you just piss a lot of money away and a lot of energy and effort away that I think true leadership in growth becomes often saying no more often than we say yes. If you'd like all the benefits of a co-founding team without giving up equity, check out today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group. It's the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. Supercharge revenue by leveraging time-tested SaaS growth principles, toolkits, playbooks, frameworks, and people, all designed to help you scale ARR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries as we uplevel ourselves, our teams, and have some fun along the way. Confidently take that right next step that turns into a quantum leap of profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. Learn more at championleadership.com. Yeah, that's not a fun thing for a CEO to do, to say no, because we always want to say yes. And, and I like your analogy at the beginning, holding back the dragon. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting it's, that it's different. I have, I've yet to find very many CEOs at all who like to say no. Um, we tend to need or lean on the second in command, that COO to say no for us. So the C yeah. COO's job is to make the CEO look good. The CEO's job is to shine the spotlight on the COO to say, Hey, he's just making the tough decisions, or I need her to be the, the bad cop. I need you know, him to do all those rough things, but it's very rare that an entrepreneurial CEO has the courage to say no. And I think they need to grow up and, and be, be able to say that more, you know, Steve jobs was great at it. Uh, Elon Musk is great at it, not necessarily good at controlling the communication, but um, very, very good at, at saying no when he's able to trust his gut and trust his team and trust his data. And he's able to listen to really smart people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked a little bit about Double Double, but you've also got Vivid Vision, Meeting Suck, Free PR, Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, What are some other lessons or core concepts from the books? Wow. I'll go through each of them then. So Double Double is really where we, we really got into the culture and the leadership lessons and the interviewing of, of, right, of correct people. I'm, I'm astounded at the number of companies out there that hire people, and yet they've had no training on how to do interviews. You know, you've got managers and leaders mm. out there that are doing and hiring people every day. And, oh, I've hired 100 people. Yeah, but maybe you've done it wrong every time. Like maybe that right. turnover you have and the grumpy employees or the underperforming or the fact you have to hold people accountable is because you have the wrong people, right? Fortune magazine asked me in 2003, how do you hold your employees accountable? I said, I don't I hire accountable people. So I think I talk a lot about the people side in, in Double Double. Meeting Suck is really written as a book for every employee at every company to read on how to unsuck your meetings. You know, again, it's amazing to me that so many people run Zoom meetings, run in-person meetings, run classroom training sessions, run meetings with customers, and yet they've had no training on how to run a proper meeting. 
So I give you the system and I also not only give you the systems to run the meetings, but I also show you if you're showing up and participating in a meeting, how to be effective as a participant in a meeting. And then we talk about all the, the correct meeting rhythms that you need, like your annual and quarterly planning meetings, financial reviews, one-on-one -on -one coaching, daily huddles, et cetera. We go through all the different meeting styles that need to happen inside the organization. Free PR is just how we landed the 5,600 stories or 5,200, sorry, individual unique stories at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Um, they were all individual unique press stories before Facebook even existed. You know, so we even wow. we had nowhere to amplify. Yeah, we did. We, we landed everything. I mean, you name the newspaper magazine of the top 20 um, TV, radio magazines and newspapers of the top 20. The only one we never got was Letterman. And we actually had a scheduled drive along with Bud Melman and he was sick for a month and they somehow canceled the episode. But we were on Oprah. Uh, you know, we were like and the, I mean, the physical print editions of Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Success, Entrepreneur, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Chicago Tribune. San Francisco Chronicle, we were in all of it. So it was, we, I gave you the lessons in the, the book Free PR on how to land PR when you don't have a budget and then how to leverage it when you land these stories, how to actually turn them into something else. You know, me being on your podcast is great because your listeners will hear me. But when I share it three times this year on Facebook, three times on LinkedIn, five times on Twitter, put it out on, on Instagram, share it with my email list and I send it out to my, my uh, speakers bureaus that represent me, that's me taking the podcast and kind of lighting it on fire. And then when I drive traffic to it, because I want people to hear what I'm saying, I've lit the fire on, you know, with gas. People have no right, idea right. how to do that with PR. And I think PR of all types, digital, print, et cetera, radio, podcast, can be leveraged in a very big way by almost every company. The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs are all the morning success habits. You know, Hal Elrod and I co-authored that together. So we talk about just having good morning routines, the, the savers, which is silence, affirmation, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing. And then I talk about leveraging vivid vision, the power of focus, um, some outsourcing that you can do. So we just kind of get into those habits. And then the last book that I just wrote was called The Second in Command. And that's all about how do you recruit, hire, and onboard an amazing second in command? And then how do you leverage that relationship? to really scale your business and frankly, to, to give yourself a life, right? Most entrepreneurs or so many are workaholics and they, you know, they'll say, oh, business is my passion. Yeah, but nobody wants to hear about your passion then. You know, no, none of us right. show up at cocktail parties wanting to hear our friends talk about lawyer and accounting and you know, selling insurance, even though that's their passion. We can't, we can't think that people are excited about our hobbies and we're just avoiding right. stuff. We talk about that. Uh, that is fantastic. That was actually one of the things that uh, hiring a second in command, absolute game changer in my business. So we got to a point where we we're just stuck and, you know, frustrated. And, and but that was the the missing piece was getting yeah. a, a true COO in there. And that just unleashed uh, another round of growth, which Unleashes I didn't necessarily expect. No. What, well, what happens is it frees you up to work on the areas that you love working on and that you're really good at, which amplifies and then it gets somebody to work on the areas that drain you of energy and that you suck at, and they happen to love it and they're good at it, so it amplifies that. So it's almost like you get a 4X to a 10X return on that investment because you're way more productive and they're way more productive, and, and it's like one plus one equaling you know, 10. Yes, yes. If you hire the right person. So you're also a lecturer. EO, MIT's Entrepreneurial Master's Program. Uh, what are some key lessons or insights that you talk about in the program, or what do you teach aspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders, and how has that changed in the last 10 or 15 years? You know, it's really interesting. None of it has really changed. Because what I tend to talk about is, is not the technology. You know, in Double Double, there's a chapter on technology. And it's almost, I should almost rip it out of the book because anything I talk about is so dated that it's even silly that it's in a book. Um, what I teach is operations, execution, people, you know, the soft skills like the situational leadership interviewing. So there might be some tech tools that you can use that you can put in place to assist with certain areas of operations and execution. There's tech tools that you can use to measure and monitor culture. Um, so there's things on the tech stack. I guess one of the big changes has been that culture has now become these hybrid organizations or full remote mm. organizations where 
how do you get alignment with vision and core values and core purpose and a BHAG and your, you know, how do you get people to communicate and collaborate when they're sitting in seven countries in multiple time zones yeah. and, and you only see them for 15 minutes a week. So I think there's a lot there now around culture that is changing for sure. That would be the one yeah, area that. that, that's really changed. Yeah, love that, that the, the principles are, are timeless, that it's not something that, that changes or has to be updated. I mean, people are people. Yeah, that, that's, I think I've just gotten lucky because if I happen to be a marketing expert, I would have to be constantly keeping up with what's happening. Or if I was a tech expert, yeah. or if I was, you know, like I, I, there's people that were the, the Novell Platinum networking engineers. Well, I don't even know if Novell exists anymore, right? And they were the best in the world. <laughs> I don't think so. So I, I, I'm very lucky that what I w was amongst the best in the world at was, you know, the interviewing, recruiting, onboarding, leadership development of people. Frankly, the content that's in my Invest in Your Leaders course, it's called investinyourleaders.com, is amongst the best leadership content in the world for growing people. And it's all self-guided content that anyone managing people needs to get involved in. And then yeah, I, I think I even got lucky with my second, you know, with the COO Alliance and with, with the OpSpot is I'm not there teaching. I'm there, I'm contributing, but I'm more collaborating and getting all the members to teach each other because we have some members from, well, we have members from 17 countries that are running billion dollar companies, $300 million companies. Like I'm not trying to teach them what to do. I'm just trying to get them to all talk to each other. Yeah, that, that's good. Really that collective wisdom. And again, it goes back to that mastermind and really having people that have you know diverse views and, and different experiences helping each other along that journey because they see things different. They're able to, to show perspective that somebody else doesn't have. You know, I often, yeah, exactly. I often see so many leaders, whether it's CEOs, COs, whatever, trying really hard, right? But I see them like a fly trying to get out the window. You know, you've seen the flies banging their head on the window. Yeah. And they're going to keep doing it all day until they end up dead on the windowsill. And if they would just step back and look and turn to the right, there's a door, right? They could just go out the door. <laughs> so I think, I think the yeah. wisdom of, of masterminds and coaching is often to show you, hey, there is a path of least resistance. There is a shortcut. You know, for, for probably 18 years, I've talked about a concept called R&D, which stands for rip off and duplicate, that, you, that your best ideas, somebody else has already been doing it. Just take their ideas and run with it. Yes, yes. Uh, very, very smart. Well, what are some common misconceptions or maybe myths about business growth that you've encountered? That it's easy. That would be yes. one. That that being an entrepreneur is cool, I think is not is not a misconception. I think it's very sad that entrepreneurship has become so cool because that I think it has created an environment for an awful lot of people who don't have the DNA or the skill set to be an entrepreneur thinking that they can. And I think it's a yes. very dangerous precedent because it's freaking hard, man. Like the, the roller coaster and the constant optimism you have to have and dealing with the stress and firing a friend and like there's and problems solving. Like the, it's just, there's a gazillion things that they're just not, they're not in the playbook. And um, I think it's very sad to see a lot of people who think it's going to be easy and think that they can just get out on social media and talk about something. And, but I do think it's good that they're entrepreneurial, you know, that they could maybe do a, if you're a copywriter, you don't have to start a copywriting company, but you can do copywriting for seven companies instead of being a copywriter for one that's being entrepreneurial, but not necessarily building a company around you. But yeah, I think that's, that's a, uh, a misconception. Yeah, I think it's a misconception. So. I think it's another misconception that, you know, all entrepreneurs are rich. I know lots of entrepreneurs that have yeah. every everything they own in their business and they've signed personally on every loan and every credit line and and they're maxed to the hilt and they're not paying themselves a big salary. Like I have a friend, Jeff Booth, who built Build Direct, and I think he'd taken in at one point $107 million in financing, was still only paying himself about 200 grand a year after building out this massive company, you know, for 12 years he could have been making $500,000 a year as a COO of some other brand, but yet he was, because he kept doubling down and pouring it all back into the company. I asked him one night at a birthday party. I said, when are you going to start paying yourself what you're worth? And he said, about six months from now, I'm almost there. 
And about six months later, mm -hmm. he he was fired by the venture capital firms and the board. Oh, wow. Because they needed the next. And I'm like, brutal. Like, here's a guy who put everything he had into this business. And I think there's a misconception that, oh, every entrepreneur is rich. It's not true. Yeah. And, or, or if we are rich, we've earned it. Uh, that's exactly right. One of the, the downsides to taking outside funding there is, uh, and that happens a lot. It happens Somebody a lot. Somebody everything into it uh, and gets uh, kicked out of their own company. That's yeah, rough. It, it happens far too often, sadly. Yeah. So I mean, we, we do, as entrepreneurs, tend to pour ourselves into our, our organizations, into work. Uh, you're a firm believer in work-life integration. I mean, how do you find that balance between professional responsibilities and personal well-being and taking care of yourself? So a few, that's a great question. A few things, and, and it is kind of the work-life integration. There's no way you can ever be perfectly balanced, right? The way I visualize it is almost like a, an elephant standing on a balance board or a teeter-totter. It's kind of going back and forth a lot, right? Trying to stay. Well, that's kind of like life. You're going to go back and forth a lot. So there's two, two or three different tools that I use to assist with that. One is something called a balance wheel. And the balance wheel is how you measure yourself on eight areas of your life, you know, friends, family, fitness, finance, spirituality, ability to say no, fun, whatever, whatever the, the eight are. And you rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. And then what I do every quarter is I pick two areas to really obsess about, like really go deep on these two areas. And, and so I kind of, I go back and forth, right? So I might this month be, well, this month I know what I've been. I've been really around fun and around business because I've been able to do some traveling by myself. My wife's back in the U.S. for another two weeks. We get to see, or no, a week now. Uh, we've been apart for about four weeks. I spent some time with my kids. I got to do some travel, but I went deep into business otherwise. And then when she's back, it's going to be I'm going to be hardcore focusing on me and time with her. And I'm probably going to, you know, get fitness back in because I've been a little sloppy on the fitness. I had some surgery for kidney stones, and I had a, a bad virus about a week and a half ago. So I'm going to get back into the fitness thing, hitting the gym, hitting yoga and spending a lot of time with her. And I'll probably take my foot off the gas on the business a little bit. So that's one tool is that balance wheel. Second thing is I've written a vivid vision, as you mentioned, for what not only what my business looks like, I have a four page description of what Cameron Harold looks like, acts like and feels like December 31st, 2024. And then my wow. wife and I, my wife and I have written one for what our marriage looks like and how we show up as humans together. Um, and so we are constantly reading that document together. I'm sending it to friends and, and trying to make every sentence of that vivid vision come true. So those are things that really help me with that work-life balance integration. And then lastly, it's recognizing that none of this shit actually matters. Like this, this is just what we do to make money. We're all going to die. None of us are getting out of this alive. Maybe we should just have some fun along the way and not take ourselves seriously, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we're never going to catch up. You're never going to get your list done. You're just going to add more right. to your list. You know, you're gonna... It just gets longer. It, right. The list well, you... doesn't get shorter. Yeah, and by the way, the list does not have our name on it. The to-do list could all be delegated every day. And if you, if, you have, if you don't have people that you can delegate it to, delegate it to them anyway and then grow their skills, grow their capacity, grow their confidence so they can do it. But stop doing work. CEOs and COOs need to do way less. We need to delegate more and grow people. That's great, great advice. Well, we got to wrap up with one of the things that, that we kind of started with, and that is speaking 26 countries, all seven continents, which I'm only at five continents, and, and I've not done Antarctica. So uh, tell me about that. Tell me about speaking in Antarctica. And I just landed my 29th country. I'll be speaking in Ireland in May of 2024. Um, so Antarctica had always been on my bucket list. My favorite book of all time is Endurance by Albert Lansing about Ernest Shackleton's mm. exploration of Antarctica when the boat wrecks and everybody survives. Freaking amazing book. Yes. And uh, I, I read it 30 years ago when my grandfather, nobody was even talking about it. My grandfather told me about the book and it was just like a good book. Um, so I'd been fascinated with Antarctica and then I wanted to pull a group of entrepreneurs together there to go. And a friend of mine beat me to it and was organizing a group of entrepreneurs to go and a guy named Yannick Silver. And, and I said to Yannick, well, I'd, I'd love oh. to come. And he goes, dude, I, I want you to come. Can you speak when you're there? I'm like, I'll speak if you pay me <laughs> and that'll be content number C. He's like, I will happily pay you. So yeah, in Antarctica, Yannick Silver presented me with a check for being uh, a speaker who'd spoken on the seventh continent 
And it was amazing. We had the first silent disco in history. We had a onesie party all dressed up as penguins one <laughs> night. Um, it was amazing. That's awesome. I'd yeah. love to go down there and scuba dive under the ice. I think that would be so much fun. No, crazy. That would be amazing. Crazy fun. Wow. We did a, yeah. we did a snorkel trip this summer um, in Iceland and it was snorkeling in the crack between two tectonic plates. And it was the plate for North America and the plate for Europe where they're separating apart and you get into so and it's cool. You're in a dry suit. It's freaking cold. Uh, I swam in Antarctica. Well, I shouldn't call it swimming. I dove into Antarctica in a, in a freaking bathing suit <laughs> and, then, and I was out almost as fast as I got in. But yeah, scuba, scuba diving in Antarctica, that would be amazing. Very, very cool. Well, where can people learn more about you and about CEO Alliance online? Yeah, so the COO Alliance and uh, just go COOalliance.com. Uh, also check out the Ops Spot, which is a community for anybody that has a manager, director or VP titles. Uh, or go to CameronHerald.com and it has links to all my books and courses and everything else as well. And it's H-E-R-O-L-D, CameronHerald.com. And we'll make sure and link to all that in the show notes, including the books in both sites. Awesome. Cameron, it was a great conversation. Thanks for being on SAS Fuel. Jeff, really appreciate it. And absolutely make sure you put scuba diving under the ice in Antarctica on your bucket list because that's a cool it's one to there. make happen. That's neat, man. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again, Cameron, for coming on the show and sharing your journey, insights, and inspiration. A solid COO makes all the difference in the world. And I just love what you're doing with the COO Alliance and, and giving them some love and helping make them better at what they do and them fantastic as second in command. It is such a game changer as a CEO. Well, you can learn more about Cameron and level up your second in command at alliance.com. And be sure to check out the Second in Command podcast as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Subscribe or follow us there. And everyone who subscribes this week gets an infinite battery life phone case. It is powered by the sheer force of your social media scrolling. The more you swipe, the more it charges. <laughs> I know some people who could really benefit from something like that. Well, join us Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, where my guest is James Allen from Profit Your Knowledge. We'll be talking about how to use your domain knowledge around your software to drive free, high-quality leads and even add an income stream to your business. Pretty cool idea. And then next Tuesday, we have founder Adam White, who has created and sold over 20 internet, e-commerce, SaaS businesses. Very insightful conversation about how to find a need, fill it quickly, and to do it in a way that other people see huge value. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go.